G'day, this is Amanda with episode 4 from Wild Food from the Rangelands. Over the years, my sensitivity to country has changed. I would characterise it as transition from landscape to land, a phrase I've adopted from an Aboriginal and non-Indigenous exhibition of the same name staged in Dalesford, Victoria in the 90s. In a previous podcast, I mentioned writer Bill Gamage's book The Biggest Estate on Earth, and how part of his research into land management systems of the First Peoples involved looking for clues in the artworks from European-trained landscape painters. He examines work from the late 1800s out of Melbourne known loosely as the Heidelberg School. One particularly famous and representative piece is Arthur Streeton's Golden Summers. Painted during a drought on the hinterland around Melbourne, this image depicts dreamily beautiful paddocks of golden pasture in the, in the summer. As I explained in a previous podcast, perennial grasses don't do golden summers. Many perennials are active summer plants that hold the colours of green, purple and rich browns through the heat of the summer. So these golden carpets would have been introduced grasses, annuals like white oats that die in summer and leave the soil vulnerable to scouring wind, rain and sun. Bill's point is that we're looking at land that had gone from being productive grasslands to erosion-prone paddocks in a very short span of time. In August this year, Jeff and I visited a station about 250 k's northeast of Geraldton. We went because we felt like doing some station time and because I'd met the owner, an elderly man, who was generous with his invitations to interested bodies. He could clearly do with a hand. His was a cattle station that had given him a good living over several decades. His wife had died a few years ago His health was declining and he was now the last one standing and facing a bit of a succession crisis. He was bitter about the fact that his kids weren't interested in taking the station on. I got the sense that years of hard work and pride in his achievements, not to mention a really large house, lots of infrastructure and machinery, were a legacy he wanted to leave, but there were no takers. My perception of the place was that the land had been hammered and needed major restorative work. Years of poor rainfall, stock rates combined with the grazing pressures of nating and feral animals meant that there were expanding tracts of land that were true deserts. In his house, he had some artworks by a well-known local painter from the Murchison region. I'd seen this bloke's work before. In some senses, he's a skilful painter, His work is traditional and realist and that he depicts what could be called consensual reality. I was transfixed by an image painted on a large circular steel saw blade mounted upright on a stand. It was one of those plates a few feet in diameter with wicked steel teeth and a little hole in the middle. On one side was what I recognise as a typical, I'm doing inverted commas here, painting of the outback, more inverted commas. The first image was in browns, reds and golden colours, afternoony. It showed a shabby wooden slab hut with a corrugated iron roof and front veranda partially reflected in a still pool of water. In the foreground, this water is circled by a dirt road that winds past the front veranda and away into the distance. The dam has a high side that has a series of fat buns of clay with deep dried channels created by running water leading into the pool. There's the inevitable windmill next to a corrugated iron water tank on a stand 
and the image is divided by a mauve horizon line with blue sky above. Central and low in the picture, three crooked fence posts stand in for a broken down fence linked by wire in front of the dam. No people. This is the cliché of station life in the outback. The old pastoralist pointed out this painting in the living room of his lovely house with great affection. I didn't get to discuss the nuances of his attitude to the image, but it seemed from our exchange that the painting satisfies something in him about his life in the rangelands, maybe because it's representative of enormous hard work. I'd listened to him talk about his life long enough to understand that hard work was something that he valued very highly, perhaps above all other qualities. And this artwork certainly hints at arduous labour. What I couldn't understand is how he could derive any comfort from an image that depicts the broken-down endgame of generations of non-regenerative pastoral practices. All his labour, all his striving have not produced a legacy that many would want. Obviously, to me, the image speaks of environmental degradation, human wrongheadedness, isolation and heartbreak. I might not even have particularly noticed this painting, except that it's painted on an industrial saw blade, an object that could stand in without much controversy as both the cause and effect of such degradation, and it's apparently presented without irony. Clearly what I see is not what the painter intended or what the owner of the picture was looking at. But look, I've been there too, living in that irony-free zone. Thirty years ago, living in Melbourne, I moved a few hundred k's northeast to stay in a cottage on a working sheep farm with a friend. She'd secured a job in a high school at the nearby town of Mansfield. It was my first experience of living rural and I revelled in it. Every day we walked for miles along gouged-out creek lines and across barren stony hills, loving the romance of nearby Lake Eildon with its striking stands of dead trees sticking up from the waters like huge grey forks, finding a post-urban thrill in the far horizons and the big skies. It wasn't till later when I moved permanently to the regions that I started to realise the land to see that the country I lived on for this year was suffering from terrible erosion. I see it now, but then I was looking from a very limited urban perspective, finding beauty in the openness and emptiness and drama and power in the large cracks in the earth. At the time, I was a huge fan of Patrick White. His books had been one of the first ways I'd been imaginatively introduced to a sensual understanding of the land I lived in. Voss, published in 1957 and based on the life of 18th century Prussian explorer Ludwig Leichhardt, takes the reader into the desert. Patrick's desert is a vast, empty, metaphysical wasteland where outsiders go to die. The perfect springboard from which a romantic urban girl can experience her first sheep and wheat farm without actually seeing what's there. All my voracious book reading had not given me eyes to see. To see that in reality I was living on soil that had been stripped of all its defences against wind, rain and sun by decades of inappropriate land management. Oh well, you live and learn. I left the farm at Maindample to go to art school. In my art as religion phase that lasted all through art school and pretty much throughout 25 years of practice, 
I would simply have dismissed the circular saw painting as bad taste, a cliched response to our land, to be lumped in with the clumsiest type of bush poetry. But the heady days of postmodernism and the happy intellectual pursuits this entailed had given me lots of interesting filters, and not least, a real interest in what other people were looking at, what they saw. This painting carries a lot of ideology, unconscious, unquestioned ways of being. So why didn't my old pastoralist mate see the hubri and ruination of his, li- of his life's work in this image and hurl it through one of his lead, pipe, lead light panels tastefully depicting local wildflowers? He was so angry about his legacy, I'm doing the air quotation thing here again, angry that it was not being embraced, and yet he gives house room to a painting that I think shouts at him that in this particular instance human labour is proved pointless aggressively destructive and leads to despair, ruination and country that is literally left gasping for life. Well, I guess this can only add to my understanding that our perceptions are there to give us feedback from the world that actually protect ourselves and what we think is vital to our continuing existence. It did occur to me that if he did read the image as I did, it could trigger a crisis in his consciousness that he would be unlikely to recover from. So he's smart to look at the painting as an ornament to a life well led and to maintain his anger. It's all keeping him in the way he is accustomed to be. And in case you think I'm not taking any lessons from this, my perception of this image bolster the view of myself I have as someone sensitive to country and very awake to hidden ideologies. I just want to tell you that it hasn't gone unnoticed that I'm an overeducated smarty pants. But why did I get so stuck on analysing what is really a shitty piece of art? I do know I felt for this man. Why not? I come from the same ignorance. And speaking of ideology, this time made conscious, the word outback offends me. What do you mean, outback? For those who live in the arid rangelands, it is rightly the centre of the planet. And down under, while we're unpacking cliches, let's have less of the urban-centric, especially northern Euro-urban-centric language. 85% of Australia doesn't have to be Patrick's imagined emptiness. It's a place rich with life that could never be depicted on saw blades. Twenty years ago, I had the opportunity of living in the bush out the back of an old cattle station turned tourism business near Kings Creek in central Australia. I spent my days tracking through this country, observing, lighting fires, drawing bushes, absolutely blown away by the red dirt, the plants, the wildlife, the space. On one of the monthly supply runs to Alice, I saw a bunch of western desert dot paintings, Possibly not for the first time, but for the first time when, actually, when I could actually see them because I had some experience of the country they depicted. They blew my mind. This was a whole different way of viewing country. Once seen, things can't be unseen and everything changes. <laughs>